Well, I suppose there's no, we've already opened court this morning, so we won't go through that formality again. I want to welcome council to our virtual forum for the in-bank arguments this morning. And uh, with that, Mr. Sauer, if you'll begin for the appellant. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, John Sauer on behalf of the state of Missouri and its officials as appellants. Your Honors, in 1982, Dr. Walter Owens who was the obstetrician that had delivered a Down syndrome baby called Baby Doe in the Baby Doe case out of Indiana, testified in court about why he had urged the parents to deny routine life-saving treatment to save the life of that infant with Down syndrome. In his testimony, he described children with Down syndrome as, quote, mere blobs, and he stated that they are, quote, quite incapable of telling us what they think and what they feel. 38 years later, last December, December 7th of 2020, Chris Nickich became the first person with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman triathlon. An Ironman triathlon is a punishing test of physical endurance. It involves a two-mile open water swim, a 112-mile bike ride, followed by a full marathon. And he trained for years to complete this. Uh, at mile 10 of his marathon, he almost gave up because he was in severe pain. And his father came to the water station and gave him a hug. And he said to Chris, are you going to let your pain win or are you going to let your dreams win? He said, my dreams are going to win. And he ran another 16 miles to finish the Ironman in 11 minutes under the regulation time. Uh, uh, Chris has 113,000 followers on Instagram. And his personal motto of trying to be 1% better every day has inspired millions of people. Our society has come a long way from where our societal attitudes were and where uh, uh, the medical establishment's attitudes were in 1982. But that progress has been patchy at best because despite the beauty, joy, and diversity, the unique inspiration that people with Down syndrome provide uh, uh, our society as a whole, and including families and communities all across the United States, including all across Missouri, the community of people with Down syndrome is just one generation away from complete elimination due to the practice of eugenic abortion. Uh, in the United States, the rate of children aborted with Down syndrome is 67%, maybe as high as 93% based on the most recent studies. In Iceland, it's 100%. In Denmark, it's 99%. France, 92%. United Kingdom, 90%. This is, a, this is the crisis against which Missouri enacted its Down syndrome provision that's before the court today. And uh, that crisis is a situation where people with Down syndrome who give this unique inspiration to our entire society are faced and on the brink of being completely eliminated based solely on the basis of a immutable characteristic, their disability, their unique disability. And what's amazing about this is this is occurring at the same time as our society is developing new realization of the value, the beauty, the joy, the diversity that these people prohibit, uh, are, 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 sorry, uh, present to our society. The Scott Coe studies by Brian Scott Coe out of Harvard and the French studies that are discussed in the expert declarations in this case provide an overwhelming ex example of this. In, in real life, on the ground, people who have family members with Down syndrome are overwhelmingly happy. Both the people with Down syndrome themselves and their family members are statistically much, much happier than society as a whole. Uh, parents and family members with Down syndrome report loving their children at 99%, being proud of their children at 97%, reporting that they are better people for having a family member with Down syndrome at 88%. Having Council, I want to, sorry to interrupt you, but I wanted to ask a sort of a mundane question here, which is, 
Um, having read the, the initial panel opinion, having reviewed the new case law, having reviewed June Medical, I want to ask you what's, what's still before the court and whether um, uh, Missouri still uh, pushes standing, third-party standing, the Section 1983 claim, et cetera. I just want to figure out what we have to decide as an en banc court. Uh, we're uh, not pushing uh, the Article III third-party standing after June Medical, Your Honor, but we are still advancing the alternative argument, which, as we discussed at the uh, panel argument, a quite distinct argument based on uh, essentially kind of statutory standing, whether or not there's a private clause of action to assert third-party rights under Section 1983. We've argued that in our brief. We argue that the district court's holding on that particular issue is... Uh, 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 it is erroneous, it violates the plain text of the statute, and that is a distinct question as to the issue of Article Three standing that was an issue in June Medical. So we, we do claim that they lack a third party, uh, the, the ability to assert third party rights in a case brought under Section 1983 as this is. Uh, we also do dispute standing, uh, as, as I think Your Honor pointed out in your separate opinion before the panel, the, especially as to the Down syndrome provision, this is a facial pre-enforcement challenge that was upheld on essentially the thinnest of imaginable evidence. Uh, if you look at the supplemental McNicholas decora declaration that starts at uh, page 786 of the joint appendix, uh, what you see is essentially a, a declaration that's carefully phrased and does not say, it's significant for what it does not say, they're not aware of any past or future case where one of their providers uh, performed an abortion that would violate the statute. That is, with actual knowledge that the uh, uh, prenatal diagnosis was the sole reason for uh, the abortion. And, and that directly violates Clapper against Amnesty International. Uh, and also, that goes to Article Three standing. It also goes to rightness. And it goes to irreparable injury, as we pointed out in our brief. Uh, Self-inflicted harm is not irreparable injury. So if you read that declaration, looking at paragraphs 12 and 13 of the declaration, you have essentially the abortion providers in this case asserting that, well, uh, uh, it's not imminent that we'll violate the statute, but we're going to change our conduct to avoid engaging in conduct that doesn't violate the statute because uh, we're afraid of legal liability. And I think Clapper is right on point on this case. Clapper against Amnesty is right on point. It essentially says that that is self-inflicted injury that doesn't support Article Three standing. It doesn't support redressability. And also, it doesn't support irreparable injury that would, that, that would be necessary to show uh, uh, the need to get a preliminary injunction. For example, just a few weeks ago, the Fifth Circuit in Texas and Missouri against Biden uh, uh, held that self-inflicted harms do not count when it comes to irreparable injury. And I think that, that uh, rationale applies, too. Uh, in the alternative, we uh, vigorously defend the merits of our statutes. Uh, uh, we've argued that, for example, uh, Casey does not control here as the NBank Sixth Circuit held just this earlier this summer in the preterm Cleveland decision. This categorical rule, the notion that these, uh, these kinds of provisions are categorically invalid under Casey is incorrect. We think the court should revisit that uh, to the extent that Edwards and MKB management go the other way. The NBank court should revisit that rationale because we believe that's unfaithful to Casey. Uh, we've offered in our brief, for example, eight reasons why Casey does not establish that categorical rule, uh, eight of which apply to the Down syndrome provision, the first six reasons apply equally to our gestational age restrictions. There's a ninth reason now, which is that the NBank Sixth Circuit has squarely held that. 
that, for example, a Down syndrome restriction is not subject to uh, not subject to this categorically uh, rule of categorical or per se invalidity, but instead is subject to the undue burden, the substantial obstacle test, uh, which raises the question of whether that provision presents a substantial obstacle to the ultimate decision of the patient to to obtain. Uh, counsel, counsel on on the Sixth Circuit, this Judge Vulcan. Um, the, a panel of the Sixth Circuit recently concluded that the Down syndrome was uh, provision in Tennessee law was void for vagueness, uh, recognize, you know, following their in-bank decision. Is that issue before us and preserved? Uh, no, it is not, Your Honor. There is no void for vagueness challenge that's ever been raised in this case, to my recollection. I believe I'm almost certain it's never been raised. And in any event, I think that decision is unpersuasive. They held, I believe, that the phrase because of is void for vagueness. And I think as the dissent, Judge Thapar's dissent in that case pointed out, that would invalidate a heck of a lot of statutes that the phrase because of is held to be void for vagueness. I think the, the reasoning of the NBank court in the preterm Cleveland case is what's on point here, which addresses the claims that have been raised in this case. And respectfully, I think it's far more persuasive than the reasoning of that slattery decision that Your Honor is referring to. Counsel, uh, I want to ask you, I want to follow up on, on the categorical point that you make. Um, you know, Rutledge, for example, and you mentioned some other cases, talk about the ban versus regulation. We have, if it's a ban, we say it's per se invalid under the, under, you know, our line of precedent, under Casey, as, as you mentioned. Um, and if it's a regulation, it is not. Uh, convince me, I mean, I, I, I noted this in my dissent that I wasn't sure whether this was a ban or regulation. Uh, what's the state's view on it? It is certainly the Down syndrome provision is definitely a regulation. We would submit that they both are regulations. As to the Down syndrome provision, I thought what Your Honor stated in your opinion is unanswerably persuasive, where you said that, look, Title VII, an employment discrimination statute, is not a ban on hiring and firing. It just says you cannot make the decision to hire and fire on a particular discriminatory basis. It's not a, Title VII does not deprive anyone of the ultimate decision whether to hire and fire someone. It just says it can't be based on, uh, uh, on, on a discriminatory basis. And that is, I think, directly akin to what this statute states. 188.038.2 says, no person shall perform an induced abortion if the person knows that the abortion is sought solely because of a prenatal diagnosis, testing, or screening indicating Down syndrome in the unborn child. So this is an anti-discrimination provision that's directly analogous uh, to those provisions of Title VII that Your Honor referred to. And I think that really uh, uh, directly refutes the argument that this is somehow a ban or a prohibition. You know, in their papers, they describe this as a reason ban. And to my mind, that's kind of an oxymoron. I think they're stretching really hard to shoehorn this into the kind of ban category when it's uh, uh, clearly a regulation. Of course, the state's primary position is the court shouldn't apply uh, that rule of categorical invalidity consistent with the language of Casey to anything but a complete prohibition, like what was at issue at Roe. Roe was a, a ban on abortion from conception onward, and neither our Down syndrome provision nor our gestational age restrictions uh, meet that categorization. And in particular reference to the Down syndrome provision, I think just a really powerful point is that Casey never addressed anything like an anti-discrimination provision. Uh, ironically, as they stated in their brief in this case, respondents' brief at page 14, note 8, states in that, in that or footnote 8 states, Casey, quote, had nothing to do with a pre-viability abortion ban and addressed, quote, regulations that are entirely dissimilar to Missouri's gestational age restrictions and its Down syndrome provision. 
that's kind of a concession. If, if Casey had nothing to do with the regulations of here, that's their phrase, not mine, and addressed issues that were entirely dissimilar to the issues here, I think that's a powerful concession that the reliance on Casey as directly addressing and categorically invalidating these particular statutes uh, is, is, is an unwarranted extension of Casey. Uh, uh, Mr. Sauer, does that, that, that position that you're taking, however, depends on your characterization of the, um, of the Down syndrome provision as a regulation, correct? Uh, I would say two things in response to that. Uh, we are characterizing it as a regulation. I think that's the best characterization. But we don't concede that a rule of categorical invalidity would apply even if it's a regulation, unless it is quoted. But do, do, you, do you concede, though, that Casey reaffirmed the, at least right now, the Supreme Court has said viability is the point before which the state doesn't have a legitimate interest to ban abortion, correct? I mean, that, that's at least as of now. I don't read Casey that way. I read Casey as saying that a complete prohibition, which would be what we had at issue in Roe, is categorically invalid. And otherwise, as the NBank Sixth Circuit just held a few months ago, the substantial obstacle test is what applies to regulations on pre-viability abortion. And our regulations, I, I submit, easily satisfy that, that substantial obstacle test. Uh, uh, actually, we've submitted that it, it, the Down syndrome provision easily satisfies strict scrutiny, which is intended to be a much more stringent uh, test. One of the main points of Casey was to kind of ratchet back the strict scrutiny that it applied uh, to abortion regulations between Roe and Casey. That's one of the central holdings of Casey. And even if strict scrutiny were applied, we've asserted nine compelling state interests. Uh, uh, the other side hasn't even disputed that any of those are compelling or that our statute advances them. They've only made a kind of, you know, feeble argument uh, that we should have pursued less restrictive means that only addresses two of our nine compelling state interests. So, but, 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 but Mr. Sowery, it, it's not just the state interest, it's whether it imposes an obstacle on the woman's ability to get the procedure. A substantial obstacle, yes. That is the holding of Casey, and a substantial obstacle is described as one that essentially would prevent, in a, in a facial challenge, a, quote, large fraction of women from getting the procedure. And, and, Here, go ahead, Your Honor. Go, no, go, go, ahead, go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, I, I was just saying, a, 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 the question, there's literally no evidence to support a facial challenge here if, if, if the court gets to the substantial obstacle test. Look at the large fraction test. This court said in Jiggly, look, this is not entirely freewheeling. This is a test that actually has some mathematics to it, isn't just sort of guessing. And you got to produce evidence that you're affecting a large fraction of cases. There's literally zero evidence uh, for, as to the Down syndrome provision as to how many of the relevant women, women with, you know, pre prenatal diagnosis and screenings would be affected by this particular obstacle. But, so, but wasn't, I mean, it wasn't Dr. McNicholas's um, statement. She said that if they have that information, they are going to stop doing those abortions. And whether that information comes from the person seeking the procedure or whether it comes through the medical records themselves, there's a good, according to her statement, if they get that, they're not going to do it. So that, at least the evidence in the record in front of uh, Judge Sachs was, that's an obstacle. Uh, that is a self-inflicted obstacle because I think her declaration clearly says, we're going to stop doing, stop engaging in conduct that the statute does not prohibit. 
That is what, what, what that says. You look at paragraphs 12 and 13 of her declaration, extremely clear. She says, we're going to stop engaging in conduct that this statute does not prohibit. And I think that that is direct, that argument is a theory of standing to say nothing of irreparable harm on a preliminary injunction. As a theory of standing is directly foreclosed by Clapper against Amnesty International. Well, Mr. Sauer, assume that, let, let's assume that, that the characterization of Dr. McNichols's um, statement is that they, if they had this information, that they would stop doing these abortions. Now, in the Sixth Circuit, there was this, the, I think that the court had expressed the view that, well, this this person could go to another provider, right? If by chance the provider learned that the reason was for uh, a diagnosis of Down syndrome. They could go to someone else and go to another doctor who didn't know. Now, Missouri is different. Missouri only has one, right now, one abortion provider. How does that factor in? Again, assuming that, you know, assuming that the first characterization of Dr. McNicholas's statement is accurate, how do we factor in that aspect of it? I think issues like that, that frankly, I, I'm not aware of any specific evidence on in this case. Would you be able to go to a different provider? There were six physicians at the facility that were providing abortions at different well, times. Well, Mr. Sauer, there's only one in Missouri, correct? Uh, so that, not, I thought that was in the record. Uh, uh, that, that, that may be in the initial McNicholas declaration, but what's not said is how many doctors are at that facility performing uh, performing abortions, whether or not there are hospital-based abortions in Missouri, which there are in certain circumstances. This is all stuff that the evidence never really got into. And I think what this emphasizes is what the Supreme Court said in Gonzales against Carhartt. The basic building blocks of constitutional adjudication are discrete as applied challenges. These kind of discrete factual issues that may bear upon or may not, depending on the individual circumstances of that case, could this particular patient obtain an abortion from another provider? Is this a substantial obstacle in that context? Those are individual factual questions that were never presented here in this blunderbuss pre-enforcement facial challenge. Uh, really, the, the main theory, really the only theory that was advanced in the district court in the preliminary injunction motion is this is all per se categorically invalid under Casey. We submit that that's incorrect, uh, largely for the reasons that we stated in our brief and that the MBAC Sixth Circuit has recently held. Uh, if there's a question of whether or not someone could get it another place, that's a factual question. As this court said in the Holy decision, the paucity of evidence on a question like that makes the question unfit for judicial resolution. And so if the court's concerned about those that issues, the court should deny the facial uh, challenge and allow individual discrete as applied challenges to be brought on a case-by-case -case basis, which is exactly what Gonzalez against Carhartt urged and invited as the proper method of constitutional adjudication. Mr. Sauer, you're with, well within your rebuttal time now. You can reserve or you can continue. I'll reserve. Thank you very much, Your Honor. All right. Ms. Lambizi? Or Lambiazzi, I'm not sure if I got that correct. You can let me know which way. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, I'm Susan Lambiazzi for Plaintiff's Appellees. I have a two-minute introduction. Legally, this case is simple because precedent is clear. The lower court granted preliminary injunctions in joining four gestational age bans and the reason ban. To do anything but affirm the decision below, this court would have to ignore Supreme Court precedent and overrule the controlling law of this circuit consistently interpreting that precedent, including Little Rock Family Planning Services, which is directly on point as to both types of bans and which was issued just this year. Such a result would be extraordinary and would deny abortion access to patients in Missouri, clearly a constitutional harm. No precedent has changed in the Supreme Court to warrant a reversal. 
This year in the Little Rock Family Planning Services, the Eighth Circuit panel upheld a preliminary injunction of Arkansas's 18-week ban and a reason ban based on a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome, laws like those here. Relying on June Medical from last year and Casey, the court said those laws were complete prohibitions and as such unconstitutional. Other panels in this circuit have ruled the same way. Every court considering the issue, including four in this circuit, has struck down pre-viability bans with the only possible exception, the Sixth Circuit in preterm, which said that the reason ban there was not a ban, but if in fact that law had banned abortion, it would be a different case. The reason ban here is a ban, because if denied abortion care at RHS, there is nowhere else to go in Missouri. The Supreme Court in Casey recognized that the right to choose abortion before viability is one of the most intimate and personal decisions a person may make in a lifetime, a choice central to personal dignity and autonomy, and that the right to determine one's pregnancy before viability is a rule of law and a component of liberty we cannot renounce. The little uh, so can, I, can I ask you, um, what's your best argument that it is a ban? It certainly looks like a regulation to me and not a ban. And I don't know that it's, I mean, certainly another panel of this, this court held that it was a ban. And so, you know, you could certainly rely on that reasoning. But I want to know why you think it's a ban. Because as I said, and as I pointed out, why isn't, in my, in my concurrence slash dissent, why isn't this a regulation? Your Honor, a, a ban is a law that prohibits any woman from making the choice from making the ultimate decision whether to terminate her pregnancy pre-viability, one that prohibits an individual's choice and mandates that the outcome is no abortion, which is exactly what happens here for any woman in the circumstance that, if you're talking about, Your Honor, the reason ban, uh, for any woman in that circumstance, it is an absolute ban, a prohibition, and Casey says they cannot be prohi prohibited. A regulation uh, to, be, to, to look at the other side is the law that controls mode or manner of abortion, but runs short of a prohibition. So is not any regulation necessarily meet your definition? So if you don't comply with a provision for a 24-hour waiting period, you don't, you don't comply with a, with a consent requirement, you say, I refuse to give consent, then you can't get the abortion. So under that reasoning, every single regulation the Supreme Court has upheld is a ban. No, Your Honor, I disagree with that interpretation respectfully. Um, it, there are regulations that are unconstitutional if they pass the undue burden test that the court has set. Um, and, Your Honor, this, this, is, this is an absolute prohibition for anybody in the category, any individual in the category. So when you're actually looking at pro ban that laws that are absolute bans, they do look like, when, they, when you look at them, as, if you were to look at them as a regulation, which I submit you should not do, and this court hasn't done, and no other courts has, have done uh, as to gestational age bans or as to reason bans except preterm. Uh, no, and I'm not talking about the gestational age right now. I'm, I'm limited to the Down syndrome provision. I should have been more clear. Your, your Honor, a law, a law is an undue burden. If, if you're looking at this as a regulation, you would apply an undue burden test um, if it has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman's choice. This, in this circumstance, for the reason ban, it's a total prohibition for women who uh, are seeking an abortion and have a fetal Down syndrome diagnosis and their doctor knows about it. They cannot get an abortion. So no, that's not true, counsel. The, the, the statute says solely because of, meaning that it has to be the sole reason, and the, the, the doctor has to know about it. So it's, it's a very limited provision in, in that respect. 
I disagree, Your Honor. I think it's not, it's not limited because of the certification requirements in the law where any doctor is required to certify that they have no knowledge that a fetal down diagnosis or screening is the sole reason. So take, for example, the person who walks into Dr. McNicholas's uh, RHS clinic and says, I'm having an abortion. I um, have a fetal down diagnose, a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome, and the doctor says I cannot supply you with an abortion because uh, I can't do it if it's your reason, if it's your sole reason. That patient then says, "Oh, I changed my mind. I'm having an abortion for a different reason." That doctor, as a as a professional person who is affirming to the state, who has the right to take away her license cannot certify in that circumstance. Well, let me ask you this. The, the patient comes in and says, uh, I have a Down syndrome diagnosis and I can't afford the baby. It's just, it's too, it's going to be too expensive. It's going to put a strain on my family. Under those circumstances, that the, the doctor would be free to perform that abortion, right? I mean, because there's another reason for the, for the abortion. No, Your Honor. It, 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 because she has to certify that she has no knowledge, she has to certify to the state that she has no knowledge that this is the sole reason. And who knows what else is in the record. For example, let's say the referral. Well, I just, gave, I just told you that it's not the sole reason. So why wouldn't the doctor, if there's two reasons, I mean, this is the self-inflicted injury argument. Why wouldn't the, could the doctor say, write down, for example, or put in the medical records, she told me there was a monetary issue and an economic issue. That would protect the doctor under the statute. Your Honor, it may protect some doctors under the statute, it may protect no doctors because there is a risk of the, of the doctors getting their licenses taken away. There is a risk for RHS getting its license removed and they could no longer function. It is, it is a risk and, and courts have said, particularly in the abortion context, that when faced with the threat of severe sanctions, which I submit removal of your medical license or removal of your health center's complete license, um, courts, doctors are reasonable in taking reasonable steps to avoid those penalties. So the argument is really what I identified in the dissent. I don't, I, you know, I just want to close this line. It's a chilling effect. Your point is there's a chilling effect here. Even if technically speaking, the statute doesn't apply, doctors, because of the threat, this is what you're telling me, the threat of enforcement, the threat of sanctions, will not perform the abortions because they will be chilled by the threat of those sanctions, even if technically speaking, the, the statute's not violated. Your Honor, I would rephrase that. I wouldn't agree 100% with what, what, with what Your Honor is saying. If the statute, if a person walks in and there is a down diagnosis, there is a risk to that doctor that that doctor will have her license removed, that that doctor will be sued by the Attorney General and, and uh, have damages or other um, injunctive relief against that doctor, and that doctor can have its health center's uh, license completely taken away. And courts have said that even if you call it a chilling effect, if you look at the Bryant case in the Fourth Circuit, the court, that court there said uh, the deterrent impact uh, of abortion restrictions have a chilling effect. Such restrictions can chill constitutional rights, including abortion access. So it's, it is a recognized thing that doctors can take reasonable steps to not have their licenses removed. And in this case, because of the certification and because of not knowing any particular reason that a person has, if there are so many complicated uh, particulars, if somebody walks in and tells a doctor or if a doctor gets um, a medical record that has information in it, 
Um, if it's conflicting, you're asking that doc doctor to take a risk and decide that that doctor um, doesn't have knowledge. And knowledge, Your Honor, is not defined in the law. It's very broad in other sections of Title, uh, Title 12 of the Public Health Law. Um, knowingly and knowing um, can, can, look, can look as um, deliberate in ignorance of the truth or reckless disregard of the truth. That's very broad, especially the reckless disregard standard. We don't know what the standard is here, and you're asking the doctors to take a risk that they cannot take. It is a very reasonable thing. Um, and she has, um, Dr. McNicholas has said in her supplemental declarations at JA 790 um, and JA 775 and 777 that she cannot provide, and as the chief medical officer of RHS, which is the only clinical abortion provider in Missouri, she cannot provide nor can her doctors provide. And the courts have said that those risks are acceptable risks and uh, and that is that is over that is something that this law cannot overcome and unlike preterm here rhs is the only clinic provider of abortion in missouri well counsel um, now you said it now you said it twice and the other side said it our media often says we got none in missouri and then the other media says oh no we have one in kansas and one in illinois i know it's related to you but but what does the record say about that since you both said it two or three times your honor um the record in JA 789 and 90, which is paragraphs 12 and 13 and 18, it might be 789 to 91, Your Honor, mm -hmm. um, in Dr. McNicholas's supplemental yeah. declaration, um, she, she says that um, if the patients cannot get uh, an abortion at RHS, then they can get them nowhere. She says, I No, no, no. She says in Missouri. She's careful to say that. Oh, yes. We have metro areas that are split in two states, Council. You're aware. Well, the, what does the record say, though? I we can. Talk I'm about sorry, Here's Your Honor. Here, go ahead. I'm sorry, Your Honor. The record is that in Missouri, patients could not get abortions elsewhere if they cannot get abortions in RHS. And the Supreme Court has said, Your Honor, that the obligation of one state to constitutionally protect those those within its borders cannot be delegated to another state. That's in Missouri XRL Gaines, and courts have upheld that in the abortion context in Jackson Women's Health in the Fifth Circuit and in Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin in the Seventh Circuit. In Casey, even, uh, the Supreme Court found an undue burden and the law was facially invalid without looking to the state's neighboring borders. Um, so, so, Your Honor, this court is obligated to look within the four corners of Missouri, not exactly four corners, but you know what I'm saying. Um, it's obligated to look and protect the, uh, the people living within its borders and not look to other states. Because if you look to the reasoning that there might be um, an abortion healthcare provider in another state, what would stop Missouri from banning all, uh, abortion altogether? Absolutely nothing. Ms. Lamiazzi, this is Jed Smith. Um, so your position is that there is no characteristic of a pre-viable fetus that would enable a state to regulate the availability of a pre-viability abortion. Yes, Your Honor. Casey has said that viability is the is the factor and is the point. And while preterm dismisses viability as the point, I think respectfully, Your Honor, you can't do that. The Supreme Court has said what the law is, and, so and even it's, if it's race, even if even if it, a person comes in and says, uh, I, "I I desire to terminate this pregnancy because." of the race of the uh that this child will be uh either directly or or uh in in mix 
that that's a basis for, or that that provides no basis for the state to, to be involved. When it comes to abortion and people making personal and intimate decisions, Your Honor, about their personal lives, the answer is yes, because while the state can regulate abortion, well, I mean, sorry, while the state can regulate discrimination, it cannot go into a person's actual decision making. So take, for example, while certainly there's a state interest in rooting out white supremacy, the state would not be able to pass a law that, um, that regulates how many people come into your home and whether or not uh, they are white supremacists. And the, the state certainly cannot say that you have to certify that no one that comes to your home for a dinner is, is, not a, is not a white supremacist. Or certainly Counsel. your neighbor cannot certify that. These are private decision, private intimate decisions, and abortion has been found to be one of the most intimate and private decisions that is uh, recognized to have a liberty interest for over 50 years, almost 50 years, Your Honor. There are That's three... I'm sorry, I, I was just going to say, you have an attack subdivision three, which does say sex or race, solely because sex or race bans abortion, so besides sex or race, right? No, Your Honor, we, our complaint actually did um, did um, allege allegations, constitutional violations of those as well. Our doctors were not able to state in their declarations that that has ever come up, so the court uh, said there was no uh, standing there. We did Counselor, your, uh, Counselor, your position assumes that uh, Casey requires uh, states to allow eugenic or race-based abortions. What basis do we have for that assumption? Well, Your Honor, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it I wouldn't call what this this, this discrimination anti discrimination law as the as the state calls it I wouldn't call it eugenics because it it's not eugenics when a person is making a decision about whether or not she can uh, sustain her pregnancy or or is choosing to terminate it. There may be um, myriad factors. There may be different reasons why a person makes that decision, and it's it's not because. Uh, that person is trying to do away with a particular um, disability. And certainly, if the court, the state's interest in, um, in, in anti-discrimination, there could be um, dealt with in myriad ways that don't affect fundamental constitutional rights of people seeking abortions. So the state is taking a state interest in anti-discrimination of people with Down syndrome, but it's applying a, a blunt lever that it's not permitted to do. The amicus brief of other states have, talks about, in I think pages 20 to 25, Your Honor, um, talks about other things that states have done um, for anti-discrimination purposes in terms of people with disabilities. So for example, the state could pass a law that requires uh, training for expectant parents and requires um, respite care for parents who need them and um, provides employment training for people with disabilities and housing for people with disabilities. This this instrument that the court that the that the state is using the blunt instrument of banning abortions based on a person's personal reason is not is not permitted under the Constitution. Um, they. Casey has said, and decades of precedent before that says before viability, no state interest um, is strong enough to prohibit abortion. No state interest. Well, counsel, are they only addressing the interest, and in, if you parse the language in Casey, are they only addressing the interests advanced in that case 
Does it really say no state interest like you say? Yes, Your Honor, I believe it does, and I believe um, other cases beforehand as well, and cases subsequent in um, preterm from last year. I mean, sorry, uh, from June Medical from last year. Go ahead. So, Your Honor, really, it doesn't matter. Counsel, Counsel, you'll acknowledge, though, that uh, the law can can change over time. There was a time when capital punishment would have been uh, appropriate or allowed uh, for persons who were uh, mentally handicapped, but that's been that's that's altered now. That's not the law, uh, uh, and it, you could go back and find old precedent that would say that it was constitutional, but uh, that's not the case anymore. Uh, could this be an area where the law can uh, be adjusted based on knowledge that science has now of uh, the worth of life, uh, the worth of individuals who are who have uh, these conditions? Well, certainly, Your Honor, the Supreme Court hasn't hasn't changed its binding precedent um, that says no state interest is strong enough to prohibit a woman from making the choice of whether to terminate her pregnancy before viability. Um, so I would submit to this court that it's obviously bound by Supreme Court precedent. And this court, um, panels of this court, four of them, have said uh, not four of them had said, at least as to gestational age bans, that it's a per se ban. And this court in Little Rock just this year said that that was a per se ban and it was bound by Supreme Court precedent. So I think, Your Honor, um, while interests um, can change over time, and certainly I would submit to this court that many interests that the state submits as to um, these bans Many interests were addressed in Casey, and many interests um, in terms of um, interest in fetal life and fetal development, um, they were addressed in Casey, and they were rejected. Um, and so the state is regurgitating arguments that other states have tried and failed. At. So when unless sorry, counsel, um, you know, in the Little Rock case, it's been mentioned several times that this argument. Some of these arguments that we're talking about today were not raised in that in that case. For example, that case was approached by both sides um, as a as a ban with respect to the Down syndrome provision. I'm sorry. Does so it does it, does it that uh, really lessen the impact of of that case? I, I disagree, Your Honor. I think this court obviously had the obligation to review that case and determine whether the reason ban based on a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome, just like the case here, whether that case goes to a per se rule or that case goes to an undue burden standard. And I submit this court that the, the court's thinking and relying on Supreme Court precedent in Little Rock should not be overruled here. This court would have to overrule Little Rock in order to... Uh, overrule and reverse the district court below. I don't think there's any basis for this court to do that. And in fact, the other courts that have dealt with reason bans, except for preterm, which I think is really a outlier and departure um, because it, both, it backs away from the viability standard. Um, the other courts have, have done the same thing that this court has done and said these reason bans are per se because it takes away the absolute right of that person to have an abortion, and Casey simply says you can't do that. Thank you, Ms. Lambiazzi. I believe your time's expired. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Sauer, your rebuttal. 
Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. I just want to make one quick factual point with respect to uh, the reference to Joint Appendix 789 to 791, the supplemental declaration of Dr. McNicholas. I'm pretty sure that does not say that the, 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 these patients couldn't be referred to another provider because I believe hospital-based abortions for fetal anomaly are available even in the St. Louis area. Uh, so if the court looks at the record, I think what you'll find is there just isn't evidence on that point, the point that was discussed in the end uh, bank position in preterm Cleveland. It just wasn't raised. It wasn't it put into before the record in this particular case, which is another point that emphasizes the proper way to adjudicate these kinds of disputes is not in a pre-enforcement facial challenge, but in discrete supply challenges that where the court can consider individual facts. I also want to very briefly uh, address that final line of questioning about how there's new there's new evidence here now. There's new information. Our society is not the same as it was in 1992. When Casey was decided in 1992, the Americans with Disabilities Act had been passed only a year and a half earlier in 1990, or two years earlier in 1990. We've submitted a long series of declarations. Obviously, in the Down syndrome case, we have the McCaffrey Declaration and the Coleman Declaration that talk about all the progress that's been made in our society with respect to Down syndrome, with respect to perceptions of people with disabilities, with respect to their unique dignity, their equal dignity, and we also submitted evidence the Kerlin Declaration about the impact on the integrity of the medical uh, uh, profession, and the Condit Declaration ad addressing the fetal pain uh, that applies both to the Down syndrome abortions, which are almost all occurring after 20 weeks of gestation, when that threshold is passed, as well as the gestational age restrictions. All this information was never put before the case in the court in Casey. It was never considered in Casey. It was never addressed in Casey. And in fact, uh, on the Down syndrome provision, the notion that Casey decided this actually directly contradicts what the Supreme Court itself said in Roe. And Roe said the proposition that the woman may have an abortion, quote, for at whatever time, that's our gestational age restrictions, and whatever reason that she prefers, the court said, with this we do not agree. So the plain language of Roe and Casey indicate that in these particular cases, these provisions should be upheld. We urge the court to do so, to reverse the uh, facial preliminary injunction in this case and allow these statutes to go into effect. Thank you, Your Thank you, Mr. Sauer. Thank you also, Ms. Lambiasi. I would like to ask both counsel a very quick question, and you can reply, I think, very briefly. And that is the Supreme Court's recently granted cert in a case that's going to address uh, pre-viability elective abortions, uh, the, the Dobbs case. Uh, do do either of you or both of you have any views on the impact of the potential result of that case on our consideration of this one? Your Honor, if I may, um, appellees uh, submit to this court that you've got all the case law in front of you to rule um, on this case uh, today, both the record and the almost 50 years of binding Supreme Court pe precedent. Um, if this court uh, were to think differently and um, hold an opinion, um, obviously it is free to do so, but we would then ask for an opportunity for further briefing. Okay. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I think the question presented in Dobbs is whether all... Uh, uh, prohibition, pre-viability prohibitions on abortion are categorically uh, 
uh, you know, are essentially uh, categorically invalid. Uh, that is a, and what's issued in that case is a 15-week gestational age restriction. It's very similar to our 14 and 18-week gestational age restriction. So that case certainly could uh, uh, be, have, have, be controlling, really, on our gestational age restrictions. However, uh, we also believe that the court can rule in our favor now without waiting for that case to be decided probably next June. Uh, so it does have a potential impact, especially on the validity of the gestational age restrictions in this particular case. However, uh, uh, we submit that based on existing case law and this record, these pre-enforcement challenges were inappropriate. Chief, can I ask one follow-up? Um, the, the Down syndrome provision, Mr. Sauer, do you think that the, the Dobbs case will have any impact on the Down syndrome provision? It certainly could do so, Your Honor, because, of course, the, the rationale of the panel in this case and the other panels and the... Uh, uh, in the Sixth Circuit and the Seventh Circuit that have invalidated Down syndrome provisions rest entirely on the proposition that all pre-viability abortions are, are pre-viability restrictions on abortion are categorically invalid. Obviously, if the Supreme Court decides that question the other way, which is the question presented in Dobbs, I think that would be highly relevant to uh, the rationale of the panel decision in this particular case, and I think it would refute the main and principal argument that's being made by the other side. Thank you, Council. Council may be excused. The court will be in recess until 11 a.m. and uh, we will uh, reconvene for conference uh, 